We are starting, though, talking about Ottawa's effort to ban what are described as assault-style firearms. It is certainly getting plenty of pushback from across the aisle in the House of Commons, elsewhere as well. During question period yesterday, we heard from Conservative leader Pierre Polyev accusing the Trudeau government of trying to turn law-abiding hunters into criminals. This is also what Pierre Polyev had to say about that. This is a firearm specifically designed to go after turkeys and ducks. These are tools for farmers and hunters, many of whom are First Nations who rely on country food in order to feed themselves. But he wants to ban them and turn those people into criminals. Once again, we see the extent to which the Conservative Party of Canada is in the pocket of the gun lobby. Uh, We will continue to move forward in responsible ways while respecting uh, the choices of uh, law-abiding hunters and fishers and people who use guns responsibly. That was Justin Trudeau here, there responding to what we heard from the Conservative leader, from Pierre Polyev. Let's bring on Daniel Fritter. Daniel Fritter has been on the program before. He's the owner of Calibre, which is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hey, no problem. I, uh, I just wish we could stop meeting like this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's uh, It seems to be a common thread, but little things are changing. And I wanted to, to talk to you about this because I would love to get your take. Well, let's start off by your response to that exchange, what we heard from the Conservative leader and the response from the Prime Minister. Well, it absolutely does ban hunting guns. Um, part of the problem with people's definition there is that hunting gun is a hard term to define but i think no matter how you slice it there are guns captioned this like uh weatherby mark 5 bolt action rifle chambered in 460 weatherby for big game um that's undeniably a hunting rifle it is expressly designed for big game and dangerous game hunting uh canada has the biggest game in north america and some of the most dangerous so um mr polyev is absolutely correct that this does take those guns away from hunters. Um, I'm not really sure where the Liberals are coming from this when they say it doesn't. Um, One of the other colleagues in the industry did a a little bit of analysis on the FRT, which is the table involving all guns in Canada. Um, His analysis shows that about 30%, one third of all non-restricted firearms uh, will pass into the prohibited category if these amendments pass. And and again, these are not these are not guns that are used in and and I and I know that argument's been made as well. And I'm not sure it really matters if we're talking about a gun that has been used to commission a crime, or even worse, a gun that's been used in a shooting, in a murder. If we're talking about safety and we are talking about doing something to make people safer, uh, is this going to do anything to do that? No, no, because. A lot of this discussion, I mean, anytime someone talks about the the intent of a firearms design or what a gun was, quote unquote, designed to do, um, I can tell you right now that if they're telling you that the gun was designed to kill a lot of people, I can tell you now having met numerous dozens of actual gun designers, they do not do that. Guns are designed to shoot a projectile, full stop, the end. The other you know, design parameters are usually things like magazine capacity, whether it's semi-automatic bolt action. That's usually marketing decisions, whether it's cost, all that stuff. Um, but they're not designed to kill. So to, to choose that as your your make-believe definition of what you're going to determine as dangerous is it's useless. You can't define what is a dangerous gun. So trying to is, is a fruitless exercise. And I think the concern here is 
Uh, they're taking a very broad definition, which is absolutely banning the most popular hunting guns in Canada, uh, pretty much across the board. Um, but it's going to cost a fortune. Um, I think today in committee, they talked about the cost associated with this because the government's very adamant in their committee hearings that if these guns are prohibited, they'll not be able to be used or retained. So then you get into the buyback thing, and then it's a 5 to $10 billion bill, apparently, uh, for this. And that's apparently that's enough money to buy 10 container scanning machines for every port of entry in the country. And we only scan 1% of all containers currently. And that's where you get into what is the larger benefit writ large for Canadians' public safety. Right, and container ships as well. We've seen incidents of guns being brought across the border using drones and and whichever kind of creative ways they're getting into the country. Yeah, I mean, we share the longest continuous border in the world, undefended with the most heavily armed country on the planet, and it's there is no close second place. So the notion that, that we're going to be able to stop criminals uh, from getting firearms by domestically trying to stop people from getting different kinds of guns, especially remembering that all this law affects is people with licenses. Because, of course, if you don't have a license, you can't possess any firearm. So banning specific kinds of firearms only impacts the kinds of firearms people that have licenses can obtain. Uh, and to get a license, you have to go through a daily criminal record check. So you kind of you're already going from from a, a tiny subset of people that are not responsible for for the majority of the crime. Um, and that's where I think you know a lot of the conservatives are going to make a lot of hay with this with regards to border security and stuff. I'm already seeing that because we see it with there's already a lot of drugs in the country. We see a lot of smuggling with that, and I think Canadians can draw a parallel between guns and drugs and smuggling uh, in their brain pretty easily, especially anyone that's seen the border. Everyone lives around Vancouver. I mean, all you have to do is drive down Zero Avenue and you get a very good idea of how easy smuggling in this country is. I want to ask you as well, one of the lines in this, it's very wordy, so stay with me, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. It's the amendment to Bill C-21, and this was the one that was introduced a few days ago, and it, 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 it says, so it says it alters the definition of prohibited weapon to include, and this is the quote, a firearm that is a rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging centerfire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner, and that is designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine with a capacity greater than five cartridges of the type for which the firearm was originally designed. What does that mean? So that means that any firearm that's center fires, so anything larger than rim fire ammunition, which is kind of one step up above pellet guns, 22 caliber typically used for gophers and, and that kind of stuff, very small caliber stuff. So any center fire, anything larger than that, um, the semi-automatic, which means uh, you would insert a magazine, you would cock the action, and every time you pull the trigger, one round will fire. They're not fully automatic. That's when you pull the trigger back and it continuously fires. That's a machine gun. Semi-automatic is you pull the trigger, it goes bang. You let the trigger up, you pull the trigger again, it goes bang. As opposed to what we would call manually actuated, which would be bolt action or pump, where you pull the trigger and then you must manually actuate the action by pumping a shotgun and then pull the trigger again, uh, for those that don't know. So that's all semi-automatic firearms. There's center fire chambering, but it's a, it can accept a detachable magazine, which is, to be quite honest, most uh, semi-automatic rifles um, do accept detachable magazines. There's literally, I've come up with one uh, in thinking on it for this entire time, and it's a $6,000 German hunting rifle. It's very rare. So it's very uncommon. So this is basically a blanket ban on detachable or on semi-automatic rifles. It does impact uh, quite a few semi-automatic shotguns as well, however, in the shotgun market. There's a larger um, volume of semi-automatic shotguns that have non-removable tubular magazines that may or may 
not be impacted by this depending on the size of the magazine. So, uh, but effectively, this is a blanket ban on semi-automatic rifles, uh, which is problematic because, A, they're great for hunting big game because they reduce recoil dramatically, which when you're shooting moose and stuff like that, it's big, uh, especially for people smaller of stature. But also, too, um, people with disabilities rely on these because uh, manual actuated guns, you have to have two hands. You have to be able to use two hands, two arms to use the gun properly. Um, and when you're talking about safety, when you're hunting and stuff, um, using the gun efficiently is a, a safety component. Um, so a lot of these people, they use semi-automatics because it's the safest thing that they can do, and uh, this bans all of those. So, uh, If the, the amendment does go ahead then, what does this mean for uh, the future, like you said, of hunting? I mean, one of the other models as well is the, the SKS, which is currently, I believe, is a non-restricted uh, gun that is very popular when it comes to hunting. But if this goes ahead, then what happens next? Um, I think it changes the landscape of Canadian gun ownership, which, I mean, obviously for those listeners that don't own guns, they probably don't care too much. But um, we're going to see a dramatic reduction in gun clubs because uh, this will kill sport shooting effectively. Um, So gun clubs will kind of cease to be a thing that exists in Canada in any kind of large numbers, which will have knock-on effects of um, hampering police training because currently private gun clubs are where most law enforcement in Canada trains. Like 95% of all rounds fired by law enforcement are probably on uh, ranges supported by private gun owners that will just cease to exist. So that'll have some problems there. Um, we'll also see a lot of problems in remote areas in the north and rural areas with subsistence hunters because a lot of these steps that have already gone on and some of the regulation changes around the shipping of ammunition have made it very difficult to do business in those areas in this market. Um, so you'll get a lot of people that do rely on hunting for subsistence, but um, probably won't be able to do so. And honestly, I don't know what happens there because if they use a rifle like an SKS that's currently non-restricted and then it goes prohibited, they can't use that gun. The government's been very clear about that. But if you live in one of these rural areas, it can be very difficult to obtain another firearm. It's very expensive. You're talking boxes of ammunition that cost 30 bucks in Vancouver will cost over $100 in remote areas. So you can imagine a firearm that costs $600 or $1,000, what it costs uh, elsewhere. So it, it'll have a lot of knock-on effects that I don't think um, the government's thought about. And I think that's borne out in the fact that this is being introduced as an amendment after two readings in the House of Commons to a, a bill that was never supposed to impact long guns whatsoever. I mean, Bill C-21 was supposed to be a handgun freeze. This expands its scope to be the largest gun control regulatory change in Canadian history, to be quite honest. So um, I, they haven't done any consultation along with that. It's been pretty apparent. And I think these knock-on effects that they haven't thought about are what, are what those normal democratic process would help us avoid. All right, Daniel Fritter, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for giving me a chance to, uh, to, to chat. Thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we are talking about childcare, and today is a big day when it comes to childcare fees in this province because savings are kicking in. Although there are still some concerns about parents who have kids in places such as unlicensed daycares or preschools, places that potentially could opt out of the fee reduction program. But joining us to talk about what things look like as of today is Sharon Gregson. Sharon is a child care advocate. Thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Jill. Thank you. Uh, well, tell us a little bit. As of today, what are parents actually going to see as far as fees and what they look like? Well, it depends on which age category your child is in. If you have a child who is an infant or a toddler, 
you'll be saving an additional $550 in a licensed childcare program. So your total savings will be $900. Um, If your child is a a three or a four-year-old, you'll be saving an additional $445 for a total of $545. And if your child is in kindergarten, so uh, just between five and six, then you're saving an additional $220 for a total of $320. So whichever age group your child is in, if you're in a licensed childcare program in a centre, you're saving substantial dollars as of today. All right. And, and looking at those age groups, so, so if you're a child in kindergarten, is that for the after school or, pre, or before school care or how does that kick in for kindergarten? That's right. So kindergarten now is a full day program, just like grades, you know, one through seven in elementary school. And so it is the before and after school portion. So in September next year, the start of the next school year, that's when the other school age ages and preschool will be part of this program. So that's that's, you know, a second step in in this transition to moving to more affordability and ten dollar a day child care. All right. What about the, um, with some childcare centers though, uh, again, they could be a licensed center for whatever reason, if they're not participating in this childcare subsidy program, what about parents that have children in those programs? Well, there are already several different kinds of, of licensed childcare. So the numbers I gave you were for licensed group care. So that's the centers that people are often very well aware of uh, called group centers. But you can also have licensed family child care. So those are smaller groups of children in a licensed family child care home. And those families are still going to be experiencing fee reductions as well. So in a family child care, if you've got an infant or toddler, you're saving an additional $400 as of today. So there's there's a wide range of families who are going to be having savings. For the number of families who are not able to find licensed childcare and who are using still unlicensed childcare, um, it's still outside of this system. And part of the reason for that is that in a licensed childcare program, there's much more accountability back to government for how the money is spent. So when a program is licensed, there's health and safety standards that have to be maintained that are monitored. And so the public funding is supporting that kind of monitoring that goes in to ensure basic health and safety standards. And of course, the big push now is to make sure all families who choose childcare have the access, have the option to choose licensed care. And that's where we need to see more expansion. Right. Okay. Uh, and when you talk about the family child care uh, model, that home model where somebody would be working uh, a child care center out of their home, whether it's their basement or part of their home, that's where we tend to be hearing from child care providers uh, who have had concerns about added paperwork doing this, as well as if they opt in, how is the formula or do you know what the formula is? So say if a child care provider right now has a licensed child care center in their home and they're charging, say, $50 a day. Is there a cap on what the government will subsidize to get that money down for the, the family? And as far as could that not have an impact on what the child care provider is charging? Well, the government has said that reasonable fee increases, um, they've given a percentage, I believe it's 3% a year, is a reasonable benchmark for a fee increase. Uh, what, what we don't want to have happen is what has happened in other jurisdictions where the government says, well, parents, we're going to reduce your fees by $500 a month. 
and then the childcare provider puts their fees up by $500 a month, so the parent is no better off. So in order for government to achieve its goals, and frankly, the goals of all of us, that parents have affordable childcare, as government begins to bring those fees down and subsidize the system, we have to make sure that the savings are really being passed on to families. Yes, absolutely, childcare providers, and I was one of them, and so I know this all too well, have to be able to cover their cost of living increases, their staffing, their programming and toy costs. But also we have to make sure that the dollars that are meant to reduce parent fees are used to reduce parent fees. And so it's a way of making sure that there's accountability for the money. I understand as well, though, there was a kind of a new formula or a new version of how this program is going to work that came out last week, that if your child isn't in five days a week, then you don't um, qualify for the same kinds of saving. And that that could mean that people who say have daycare for four days a week, uh, they're going to end up paying for the same as somebody that maybe has five days a week. Have you heard about that or some concerns about that? I have not heard those kinds of concerns. Uh, There is, of course, um, we want to make sure that when people have a full-time space, so Monday to Friday space, that that's the care that they actually need and want and are using. Now, of course, there's always going to be people away on vacations and, and for illness, but we want to make sure that if people only need care two days a week, that they're not using a space that's five days a week because that's then um, shutting somebody else out of, of accessing the care that they need. So it is still a bit of a balancing act to make sure that there's flexibility for families, but also making sure we're maximizing the spaces that do exist. And it really puts the pressure on government to work with nonprofits, work with school districts and municipalities to extend, expand the number of childcare programs that we have in BC and that we train and educate the professionals who will be working in those programs because we need to think about the workforce in childcare as well. So government's got a big job on its hands. This is a big positive step forward to bring fees down from 70,000 families. That's, you know, that's a huge number. Um, but we acknowledge there's more work to do. And you mentioned as well uh, your background, somebody who has been in that position of operating a centre. Uh, what, what do you say about the concerns about, again, the, the, even though they are getting some additional administrative funding, the amount of paperwork that this will add on to people who are going to be very busy looking after children, as that's their, their primary job, that's their, what the service that they're providing, but will now have all of this additional administrative work to be doing. So we need to make sure that government makes this um, paperwork seamless and online and really easy, user-friendly to complete, doing monthly reports of enrollment and that kind of thing. But we have to remember also that childcare providers are going to be getting a lot of public money, money, a lot of our taxpayer dollars. And frankly, I think we want to make sure that people are accountable for how that money is used. So Um, Yes, it has to be user-friendly and the reporting has to be um, smooth for operators, but we also, we don't want to make it so that there's no accountability for significant public dollars. All right. Sharon Gregson, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jill. Anytime. Take good care. 
coming up a little bit later on in the show. We are talking more about the Nexus program and a unique way, you could say, a creative way of trying to bridge the gap when it comes to the United States and Canada, hopefully coming up with some kind of agreement to save the program. So they are expanding a pilot project between Canada Border Services Agency and U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And this is at the Thousand Islands Crossing near Kingston, Ontario. This caught my attention earlier today because I thought, why not do that at other crossings as well? And they're streamlining it. Well, it's actually kind of the opposite of streamlining it. Instead of people meeting U.S. and Canadian agents at the same time, applicants will be interviewed first in Canada, and then they'll cross the border for that second interview with American officials. And uh, officials on both sides of the border are calling it a short-term solution to the bilateral impasse that has led to United States agents refusing to staff Nexus enrollment centers on the Canadian side of the border over what they call inadequate legal protection. So that's something that's happening in Ontario, and we're going to check in with the local immigration lawyer to get his take on that Could something like that work in B.C., especially given the landscape and things that are near the border? So we're going to uh, talk about that with Len Saunders a little later on this hour. We're going to check in with Len just after the 1.30 news. Also coming up on the show, we like to do something a little lighter, usually in the 2.30 half hour of the program. And in that case, so well today, brain freeze. And it is exactly what it sounds like. And if you like cold water swimming, you'll want to stay tuned because there's a big event coming up with that happening in Vancouver. Right now, though, as mentioned, we're going to talk about a very popular Vancouver co-op that has about 300 residents. There's also a daycare center in the building, but the lease expires next year. And there's a lot of uncertainty over what is going to happen next. Well, Darcy Johnson is joining us now, president of the board of directors at the Creekside Housing Co-op. Darcy, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Jill, thanks for having me on. Well, we'll take us back kind of for people that aren't familiar uh, with this. I know this this particular co-op is uh, in False Creek, uh, close to Granville Island. Tell us a bit about the Creekside Housing Co-op. Yeah, the Creekview uh, Housing Co-op was built in 1985. And it's the co-op, when you drive onto Granville Island, you'll see a big residential building to your right, and everyone goes, who the heck lives there? That's, that's me and that's us. And our land is, is uh, leased from the city. And it expires at the end of next year. And we've been trying for the last 10 years to renegotiate it. We've had three different city councils all vote in favor to give us a comparable lease uh, to what we have now, all to no avail. So we're really hopeful and excited that the newly elected mayor ken sim and the abc city council can finally get this going and and get our our housing secured and what's it been like in the past then as far as when the lease comes up and renewing it um well i've i've heard from our lease committee i i don't i haven't been to those meetings i've uh with the city um but it changes changes different people uh, it gets so far, and then it, it falls apart. Um, and it, it really just comes down to what the mayor and the real estate board decide to do with us. Which has got to be a bit uh, uh, nerve-wracking or a bit stressful for you and for the uh, residents of the co-op. 
It's very stressful. We have, um, you know, as a housing co-op, we have a lot of interesting things that we can do. We can, you know, on top of our affordable housing, uh, there's means to get other funding to help people who are low income. We have a lot of elderly, low income people here on assistance. And they don't have any other options. So they get really nervous when, you know, we're down to one year and they don't know if they're going to be, they just don't have secure housing. So what would happen then if the lease expires and you don't, you have not signed a new one with the city of Vancouver? Oh gosh. Uh, I don't know particularly what would happen. It's, it's grim to think about that, but you know what? I'm, I'm actually optimistic and I'm hopeful because this co-op works, co-ops work. And, you know, Mayor Kinsim recognizes that because he, he has said on his platform that he wants to double the number of co-ops in the city, which makes perfect sense. It is the one model that has, that has retained and kept affordable housing in this city. And I'm not going to worry about the last 10 years. I, I think our neighborhood should be doubled. I think there should be more co-ops. It's, a lot of people don't know what they are. It's just simply no one owns the building. That's it. We, we put our money in, we pay off our mortgage, we pay for upkeep, and we manage it ourselves through committee and through uh, democratic means. And it, it works, and, it, and it's a community. I have a daughter here. She has meaningful relationships with some of the elderly people in the building and goes out and gardens with them. It's, it's the type of community that I always hoped I could get and I actually found. And when you talk about the mortgages too, that's got to be an issue, isn't it? If there's not a lease secured, if somebody has a mortgage that's coming up for renewal or is in that scenario, that's got to be something that the bank's looking at, isn't it? Yes, we need a, a, a certain length of land lease negotiated so that we can get funding to do repairs on our building. So we need a new elevator. We've needed one for a couple years and we can't get funding because you have to prove that you're going to be here in over 12 years to get the funding. Now, we can afford it, we can pay for it, but you just, that's what lenders need to secure uh, funding. So, so we, we need a, a healthy land lease to, uh, to maintain our building. And if anyone's interested in what the new mayor and the city council has in store for affordable housing and for co-ops, uh, Creekview Housing and, and our land lease negotiations would be a good eye to keep your eye on because, you know, we're next up. We're the spearhead, and, and how they, what, what, how, how our negotiations go is indicative of what's going to happen in the city for um, the foreseeable future. Well, and do you think as part of this also, the whole Reeve kind of vamping of that area, the plans for South Falls Creek in the future yeah. and what's going to be happening there? Because there are a, a lot of leasehold buildings in that area, and there is a plan, at least the, the previous council had a plan for that area. Do you think that the, part of the reason that this has stalled or that you haven't got anything concrete is because of that? Well, I mean, they did come out with a drawing, I believe, of like a big tower where my building is and some other stuff. The problem with that is it was just done with the, the current mayor and the real estate board. There was no consultation with anyone in the neighborhood. So our neighborhood is a 30-30-30 model. 30% uh, uh, strata uh, homeowners, 30% rental, 30% housing co-ops. And it's all integrated and it all works. And it's been replicated internationally. People come here to replicate this community model. And that sort of thumbnail sketch plan that was done threw away that model 
uh, put all the co-ops in, like it just it, it didn't reflect the community it didn't it didn't keep things we know that change is going to happen you know like this i haven't met one person who has said oh we just keep it the same and nothing's ever going to we understand that but we just want to maintain our community and to have an understanding of what the plan is Right. And didn't it, if I, I'm going by memory, but didn't the, the plan that was put forward as potentially the future of False Creek South, it, it moved the co-ops, didn't it? Or it moved a lot of the housing that, and the, the complaint was, or the, the issue was that it was kind of made to then be the buffer from the, the waterfront lands and that area to the, to the rest of the city or to the, to the train tracks? Yeah. So right now, uh, if you walk the neighborhood, and I highly recommend you do that during Christmas in snow, it's beautiful. And uh, you can come down here and trick-or-treat. It's, it's a great neighborhood. You can't tell what building is rental, co-op, owner. It's, it's, all, it's all mixed, and everyone works together. And the new plan was segregated, um, and it just it was not what our community reflects. Right. But are you, are you concerned, though, that, that it is that new plan and then that that's the reason why if the lease isn't being signed or it's being held up because there is some other movement or there's some thought that, that things might be shifted around and that a building like yours would, would maybe stay in the neighbourhood, but to, the co-op housing would shift to a different parcel of the land? The main concern is we simply don't know. That, that we're, we're negotiating... And we know probably as much as you do, Joe. Hmm. And so what happens then, and I, I get that you, what you said, that you're not on the, the actual committee, the lease committee, mm-hmm. but have there been meetings with City Hall or is it something that it's waiting for the new council to, to kind of settle in? Or what happens then with, with meetings and, and leading up to the lease expiring next year? Well, we are next to be negotiated and our next meeting is December 6th. And what are you hopeful that what will, will happen at that meeting? Well, I, it, there's been some ambitious platforms from this new mayor and council. And so I'm keeping an open mind. I mean, things can change uh, quickly. And, 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 I'm, and if they want to double the number of housing uh, units of co-ops, my guess is that they would want to maintain the ones that are already here. Are you aware of any other co-op buildings in that neighborhood that are in similar situations? Oh, yes, yes, yes. We are one of five in the neighborhood, and um, there's a representation from all the buildings, even the Strata buildings, on a group called Replan, and uh, they meet regularly to uh, try to work with the city and and get negotiations going for for all the buildings, not just the co-ops. Uh, and you mentioned as well one of the reasons too. Well, there are many reasons, but the other one, uh, one of them, getting funding, making sure you can do repairs and and uh, things like the elevator that needs service. Uh, other than that, I mean, is the building in pretty good shape? Yeah, it's an eight-floor concrete building. It's it, if maintained, it's going to last for many years. It won architectural awards when it was uh, built, and um, yeah, it's it's it, it it is it is in good shape. But you know, like all buildings, they need. Uh, Especially in Vancouver, you need to updo the, the envelope, and elevators don't last forever. But that's really all we're looking at. You know. 
Oh, for sure. And, and when you talk about affordable housing and it, this being an affordable model, I know you mentioned the difference being uh, you don't own the building, uh, p- people still have mortgages. How much more affordable is it? And, and you could even speak generally speaking for people to live in a co-op like this yep. compared to other types of housing. How much how much more affordable is it? Well, this is this is the disheartening thing. When I when I moved here nine years ago, it was roughly the same price as where I used to live. And in the last nine years, um, our housing rates are on our website. You can go see uh, Creekview Housing on our website. But it's, it's a little under half what market, the market pays right now. Which is a huge, a huge yeah. savings. It probably brings it, I mean, looking at what the market pays for some, some units, uh, small units or any size, really. I mean, it's, it can be uh, what some would describe, I think, as outrageous. So that's yeah. a, a huge difference. It is. And, and a lot of uh, new members that come in, you know, they start families and they tell us we wouldn't be able to have a family unless we lived here. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, we will uh, wait and see and, and hopefully get an update, uh, like you said, the next meeting uh, to be held on December 6th and what's happening with the, the other co-ops as well. Darcy, thank you, though, so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for your time, Joe. I appreciate it.